This week we continue in our series, a study in the book of Ephesians. Today we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to talk about compassionate service. I'm going to read the text. We'll also have it up on the screen for you. And there's three things that I'd like for you to look for and that we'll discuss that we find in this text. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, the scriptures teach that we're saved from something, we're saved by something, and we're saved to something. So saved from, saved by, saved to. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're still trying to figure the whole Jesus thing out, I'm glad you're here, because what we're going to talk about today is one of the fundamental truths of Uh, the gospel. It's the fundamental truth, the foundation of the church. It's why we exist. It's why we do things like sing and give and serve. Today, when we talk about compassionate service, uh, we're going to look to this text to find what we're saved from, what we're saved by, what we're saved to. I'm going to read it. And here's another thing, too. Uh, The author of the book of Ephesians was this dude named Paul. He wrote to a church in a place called Ephesus, which is why the book is named Ephesians. It's a letter. It's a pastoral letter. And uh, the author was really fond of run-on sentences. So if there's any um, English teachers or uh, grammar, grammarians, I don't even know what the word is, um, it's inspired Holy Scripture, so tough, okay? Uh, and I'm, I don't even think there's, like, there's no punctuation in the original. So uh, what, what I, the reason I bring that up is this. The author here seems to get kind of overwhelmed and excited a couple times as he writes. And I want you to kind of, as we read it, I want you to see if you can find some of those spots where it just seems like he's like, oh, I got to say this, or I got to interject this, or I got to put this in there, all right? So check this out. I'm going to read it. You can follow along in yours or up on the screen. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through uh, 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. In this text, we have what we are saved from, how we are saved, or what we're saved by, and then what we are saved to. Look in verse 1. For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were what? Dead. D-E-D, dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
and were by nature children of wrath, which sounds like an awesome heavy metal band from the 90s, right? You were children of wrath. Now, here's what the author is saying. He's pointing to this reality that if we live apart from our creator, if we as created beings live in broken relationship with our creator, if we live in rebellion against our creator, that leads to death. That's a life of death. It's a life of slow decay. And we see this in our own lives, don't we? Because if, we, if you know a selfish person, have you ever met one? You ever met a selfish person? You ever met a person you're like, that person is selfish. They're not as humble as I am. <laughs> if you haven't met a selfish person, you might be the person other people in this room are thinking about when I ask the question, do you know a selfish person? Now, selfish people, uh, by the way, which we all are, am I right? To one degree or the other, our general tendency is to gratify our own desires, to live in such a way that our constant pursuit is to satisfy the desires of the body and of the mind. What we think we want, we go after. What our body tells us we want, we go after. We think if we can just consume enough, if we can just have enough, then I'll be happy. But self-centeredness, you know, left unchecked, is a, as Soren Kierkegaard, who's a great philosopher from the 1800s, it's a sickness unto death. That if we live completely and utterly consumed with ourselves, that is a life of death. I know many of us have been impacted, uh, many of us in our families, some of us as individuals, uh, we, we have seen the effects of drug addiction up close and personal. And one of the things that you find with uh, those who um, struggle with drug addiction is that there comes a point in time where everything is simply about them, their desires for the next fix, their gratification of that urge, and that is not foreign to any of us. That I need a fix, I need the thing. My flesh is telling me, my mind is telling me, I need something to be happy, and we spend our lives addicted to ourselves. And that life, you see it many times in uh, those who struggle with drugs, you can see a life, self-centered life, left unchecked, leads to a life of what? Loneliness, fear, Despair, decay, a life of death. You see, what the author here of Ephesians is telling us is that being apart from our creator, with, if our creator is not the center of us, if, if, if the Lord is not our center, then we put ourselves in the center and everything exists to serve us. And if that goes unchecked, imagine that for an eternity. Imagine the selfish people you know and how miserable and insufferable it is to be around them. Do that for an eternity, because self-centeredness, it splits us apart, doesn't it? Like no one's inviting Mr. Self-Centeredness to their birthday parties. That life of decay, that life of separation is death. We know that to be apart from our creator is to gratify our own selves, to be consumed by the self, it's a life of death. So the apostle Paul here is saying, you were once dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead, D-E-D. Let's try that again. You were dead, D-E-D. You're dead. 
And to be apart from our creator is a life of death. Hmm? We are saved from death, not just physical death. See, to follow Jesus, it's not just about getting into heaven. In fact, spoiler alert, heaven actually comes to earth and we live in physical bodies for eternity unified with one another in our Lord. That's the end of the book, P.S. It's not about avoiding hell and not about avoiding death. It's about even right now in this moment being redeemed and saved from a life of slow decay, self-centeredness. You follow me? We're saved from death. We're saved by something. Verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, TV time out. By grace you have been saved. Now you finish it. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Okay, by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. Now check this out. I'm gonna just go to the highlight ones. Not a result of works, so that no one may us. We are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is one of the most powerful sections of scripture. Gives you a whole view of what the Christian life is all about. You've been saved, not of your own works. You with me? So, all that good stuff you did or do or plan to do, that's not what saves us. That's not what redeems us from a life of death. And this is the American gospel. This is what this is what all of, most of us struggle with this and all of our neighbors believe this because if you go to your neighbor today and you knock on their door, which I know you don't do because you're a Phoenician, you knock on their door, right? You don't even know your neighbors. How can you love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor? That's another sermon for next week. But for today, let's pretend like you know your neighbors. You go over, you say, hey neighbor, if you were to die today, see now we're getting serious. I don't, I don't suggest doing this. If you were to die right now, Right? And because you're Arizona and you could brandish a firearm. If you were to die right now, would you go to heaven or hell? Most people would say heaven, right? Unless they're wearing a Children of Wrath 1990s heavy metal uh, shirt, they'd be like, hell, wow! <laughs> if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? They're going to say heaven. Why? Because I'm a. Because I'm a good person, because my works will make me stand justified before the judge, before the king and creator of the universe. That's the American gospel. If you just do enough good, if you just send enough money to Houston, if you just volunteer enough time, if you're just a good enough person, then God will owe you. You follow me? That's called legalism. It's this idea that if I'm just good enough, then I can stand right before God. But here's the, here's the jam. You ready? God also judges the motive. So doing a good thing in order to try to manipulate God makes the thing not count in the good thing category. Right? Doing good works ain't like paying our taxes. God, I did uh, enough good, let me into heaven. Right? That moralism, that legalism. By the way, there's religious people that are legalists and there's non-religious people that are legalists, right? Just go on Facebook. Just, you you got to do this. You got to do that. If you're a real, you know, good human, do this. And so we can have in our minds this idea that if I'm just good enough, then God will owe me. Let's, let's just play that out a little bit. Let's imagine that I've got here, um, actually I brought it, my moral thermometer 
You guys remember the moral thermometer? Some of you remember it. Some of you, this is new. I'd like to introduce, me, uh, I'd like to introduce you to our moral, moral thermometer. Here it is. Me, 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 me. There it is. There's our moral thermometer. And at the top, you've got good. And at the bottom, you've got what? Evil, right? You guys with me? You see it? Moral thermometer. The top, we got good. And at the bottom, we got evil. So the top, we're going to put like Mother Teresa, right? We're a good person. Mother Teresa, good person? Yeah, she's a good person. Sweetheart. Okay, Mother Teresa up there. And at the bottom, what are we going to do? Right, Hitler, right, Stalin, right, Garth Brooks. We got them all. We got them all. Okay. Okay. So at the top, we got good people. At the bottom, we got evil people. Where are you? Uh, Right, right. You know, we don't want to be presumptuous, do we? So we're going to put ourselves like right around. Okay, here's Mother Teresa. Here's here's Garth Brooks. And we're kind of right here. We're certainly not as bad as Jim down the street right? Who won't mow his lawn to save his life, okay? Come on, guy. We're, we're definitely above our neighbor, Jim, who we don't like. Uh, we're right here. Okay, good. I'm glad that you have self-identified where you are in the moral thermometer. Now, who gets to decide where the cutoff is? Where's the cutoff? The cutoff, almost always in our, in our minds, is above Jim, but under us, right? Now, here's the jam, Right? Who gets to decide? Because if you get to decide, you have just set yourself up as the king and creator of the universe who decides who gets in and who gets out, which is like the most preposterous act of self-centeredness that there's ever been. Y'all with me? Like, people who set themselves up as the judge of the universe and as the king and creator of the universe usually kill a ton of people. Right? Every maniacal dictator that's ever slaughtered thousands has that God complex. And you and I are under the temptation every day to operate under the impression that something is broken with the world and I know what's going to fix it because I'm a good person. And P.S., when I self-identify as a good person, all the people that I identify as not good people, guess how I get to treat them? Miserably. Subhuman. We are saved from a life of self-centered death. We are saved by grace, not by our works. Okay? To follow Jesus is not to be a good person. If you say the word, so, so for those of us that are Christians, I'm just going to give you something here. If you say, if someone says, hey, you know, are you a Christian? You're like, yeah, well, I'm trying to be a Christian. Or I've heard people say, I'm trying to be a good Christian. That, what's that mean? Like a Christian is someone who trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that he has done has given to us redemption, life, and life abundantly. No works that I did have made me a Christian. No works that I've done have made me alive. Therefore, if I say I'm trying to be a good Christian, what do I even mean? I might be misunderstanding Christianity because Jesus says it's not your works. You can't try hard enough to be loved by God. You are loved by God. You guys with me on this? Like, check this out. If I think that my good works get me heaven, I can be smug and prideful and arrogant and self-centered, which is a life of death. Do you see how the author here, he like, he j- he's just like going crazy about this whole grace thing. He, he, he like, it like bubbles up a few times in the text. He's like, yeah, we were all dead, but we've been saved by grace. And let me keep talking, but we've been saved by grace. Do you see how this is freeing to those of us who are stuck on the treadmill of morality. Now, 
We have been saved from a life of death. We have been saved by grace. And we have been saved to do good works. Right? So John Stott, who's a writer, theologian, he says this, good works are indispensable to salvation. Not as its grounds or means, but as its consequence and evidence. Now, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta follow me here. Good works are indispensable to salvation, but they're not the grounds by which we are saved, they are the effect. So let's talk about that for a minute. Here we go. As people, for those of us that are followers after Jesus, who have been saved from a life of death, as we reflect on that, like we did when we took Lord's table just a moment ago, and we see needs in the community, we see needs in our country, we see needs around the world, what can we do but help? Okay, I want you to see the train of thought here. Compassionate service stems out of a heart that recognizes I've been saved from a life of death and decay. You with me? I've been saved from a life of complete and utter self-centeredness. Therefore, because I've been saved, I've been saved to do these good works. I mean, like this language is strong. Chickity, chickity, check. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now check this out. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means that God has sovereignly ordained the good works that he has for us to do. I'm so thankful for the, numer- the hundreds of volunteers that serve us each week here in and through Desert Springs. Do you know that people gave of their time and energy to clean the chairs you're sitting in this week? You don't know who they are. There's people who are serving right now in in amazing ways, our adventure kids. There are leaders who are serving in our students' ministry, our tech team, our host team, those who served us a communion today in Lord's Table. What a blessing that is. Those who prepared Lord's Table for us did so behind the scenes. Our missional community leaders who give so much time and energy. Many of them were here yesterday for training. Some of them will be here today for training. Our culinary team and hospitality teams. Do you guys like coffee and water? Amen. Right? And separately? <laughs> Our hospitality team does an amazing job. There are those who volunteer their time so that we can host free funerals for our community. There's an immense amount of time that goes in, energy that goes into that. The artists who bless us each week uh, by uh, leading us in song and also by providing for us the artwork that we're able to use and worship with. I'm so thankful. As a church family, we fundamentally believe that when we serve in and through the church, it's not about getting a job done, it's about our flourishing because we have been saved to do good works. Your skills, gifts, talents, and resources, when they come alive in acts of service, we grow in our faith. We, we get a chance to see Jesus uh, uh, working up close and personal. You follow me? Uh, we, we never encourage people to volunteer because a job needs getting done. We do it because you will only truly flourish in your faith and life if you serve. Now, there are many opportunities to do that here in and through Desert Springs. There are many, many, many outside of our church family. We love it. Regardless of where you serve, serve. Unfortunately, though, the church today, in our particular climate, is not known for its acts of service. By and large, the church is known for 
more for hand wringing than foot washing. Because many of us were just worried. What's this, what's this political thing going to do? What's this, what's this thing going on in our culture going to do? We're just wringing our hands. We're just nervous. We're anxious. There are many who are striving to maintain power and control rather than using their power, control, and privilege to serve. Unfortunately, the church today is known more for hand-wringing than foot-washing. But I will say that there's a difference when you read national news and when you read no- local news. Because the church, by and large, serves compassionately and quietly. I mean, it's the teaching of the Lord to not walk around with a trumpet saying, look at all the good works I'm doing. Right? At Desert Springs, we strive to say it's not about logos or egos. It's about serving. And when you read national news, by and large, the view of the church is about hand-wringing and power grabs. But when you read local news, you see things like local church families adopt Title I schools to serve and bless. You see? Because it's when you're on the ground that the church actually comes alive. Because the church is not built primarily to proclaim the glories of itself. Rather, we just humbly point to our God. Let me give you some encouragement, too. Are things a bit chaotic? Come on, I read your Facebooks. <laughs> right, come on. Are, are, are things just a bit crazy? Do you feel overwhelmed? I do. I was watching a video by the president of World Relief, which is seeking to serve uh, many who are displaced, refugees, things like that, here and around the world. And the president was just, I mean, with just bags under his eyes, he's like, uh, if you feel overwhelmed, we do too. Right, with the... With, the hurricanes, with the fires, with the droughts, with the displaced person epidemic. But one of the things that he encouraged was we are not called, you and I, we're not individually called to fix everything, right? You guys with me? Right? Not every crisis needs my commitment. My commitment is to the Lord and to follow what he leads me in doing. You with me on that one? Okay. But let me encourage you in this too. As you think about your response, because our two temptations are anger or despair. Those are our two big temptations. Anger, whatever the issue is, or despair. And so let me give you something uh, perhaps to cling to here. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If we can start with this, I was once dead. I was once lost, caught in self-centeredness and a life of slow decay. I was once dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, has saved me, not because I did something, but because he did something. Not because of my good works, but because of his, his finished work on the cross. I was dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, has saved me. Now, what should I do? You follow me? Recognizing what we have been saved from, 
what we have been saved by and now contemplating what is the good, verse 10, what is the good work that God has ordained for me to do in this moment? He said it in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, I want you to, I want, I want to, we're going to do something. I want you to, if you would please, if you just humor me please, if you would just close your eyes. I'm not going to do anything freaky. And I'm going to reread verse 10, and I want you to personalize it and internalize it. And I'm going to change the words so this will fit what we're doing here. For you, you are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God has prepared beforehand so that you will walk in them. Okay, you can look at me now. Do you recognize, okay, so check this out. Do you think any of the needs that are in our city, in our nation, or around the world surprise God? Nope, not surprised, right? God is not surprised. God is not shocked. Two, we believe fundamentally that God is sovereignly in control. He, uh, the scripture says that he chooses the time and place that we exist in. Are you here by mistake? Nope. We see here that God has preordained good works for you and I to do. And you and I, we are God's workmanship. To put it another way, as God understanding the space-time continuum, understanding what the needs are of this day, God has sovereignly worked it out so you are here now to do a good work that he, before time began, recognized that you are to do. You are God's answer to the question, who will meet this need? You're his workmanship. You're his, you're his answer to the question. You're not here by mistake. This isn't random chance. God has sovereignly ordained it. You, have been, you and I, we have been saved from death by grace to do good works and walk in them. And we are God's handiwork. Amen. The answer to the question, who will meet the need that we see God calling us to? Rafael Hernandez was a firefighter from Mexico who was in New York on 9-11, 2001. He was hanging out with some of his friends, taking tours of the city when the planes hit. He smelled smoke, and he ran towards it. He went to one of the local firehouses, and he showed him his uh, Mexican firefighter badge, and they said, help us. So they gave him some, some gear. He geared up. He went to the North Tower, and as throngs of people were running down the stairs, he was running up. He got to the 28th floor where he ran into Allison, who was nine months pregnant, screaming, help me. My water broke. And so he carried her down 28 flights of stairs. A few years later, Raphael heard of the need in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina. And so he packed up his stuff, and he went. And this is what he said. No one asked. I just felt I had to lend my skills. 
I believe fundamentally that those were good works that God had prepared beforehand for Rafael Hernandez to walk in. And that young woman gave birth to a little healthy baby because of his faithfulness to meeting that need. Now, could he fix everything? No. Was the cost great? Yes. Some of the chemicals that he inhaled during that time have uh, caused him a lot of illness. But he walked in it. What is God calling you to do? We're not called to fix everything. We're not called to serve everywhere. But we we are called to serve. 